Hope 103.2 podcast. Good morning, everybody. Let's pray again for a moment, asking God's help. Our gracious God, as we turn to the scriptures which you have recorded for us, we pray that the same Holy Spirit who enabled them to be written would help us now to profit from them, uh, to see wonderful things in your word and in your goodness to live them out. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning a new little series of eight sermons in the first five chapters of the book of Romans. Uh, You probably know that Romans is considered the Mount Everest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And this particular letter is all about a global problem and a global solution. The issue of Romans, the issue of sin and a saviour, is relevant to everyone. Uh, The disease of sin is a killer. The solution, Jesus Christ, is life-giving. And the stakes are eternal. No wonder the Apostle Paul is so urgent and keen for the gospel. Now, Romans is a very meaty letter. It's not only changed the world. Uh, Think of people like Augustine and Luther and Wesley who've picked up the letter or heard the letter and been amazingly changed and had a big impact on the changing of the world. But uh, this letter has also stretched the minds of believers and scholars for 2,000 years. It's a meaty letter. Uh, You may know the story of the secular astronomer who meets a Christian minister. And the secular astronomer says to the Christian minister, well, you have such an easy life. I suppose you just get up on Sunday and you say something like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And the Christian says back to the astronomer, well, you have a particularly easy life as well because you get up and you lecture and I presume you simply say, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. And of course, the world of um, astronomy, the world of biology and botany and theology have got massive depths and breadths to them. And we see some of this in the letter of Romans. Christianity is simple. It's simple enough for a child, but it's also profound and stretching for the greatest intellect. Now, we're going to look at the first 17 verses this morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 23 sermons on these verses, and I'm going to try and do some justice in just one sermon. I have two headings. The first heading is the very best news to take in, Romans 1, 1 to 7. And secondly, the very best news to give out, Romans 1, 14 to 17. So first of all, the very best news to take in, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Well, we're told the letter is from Paul. He describes himself as a servant and an apostle, which is a very nice blend of humility and authority. And it's to the Christians in Rome where he has never been. Uh, How did the church begin? Well, we're not exactly told. We certainly see that there is no reference to Peter in Rome. But uh, we must assume the answer to the question is that on the day of Pentecost, we're told in Acts chapter 2, that when many nations had gathered in Jerusalem and Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and preached the news of Christ, that many who'd come from Rome uh, went home believing and began a little church. Uh, Paul describes himself in this first verse as set apart for the gospel. 
In other words, God appointed him for the gospel, or he assigned him the work of the gospel, or he allocated him to the gospel. And in these opening verses, he tells us five great things about the gospel, things that we should take in. And here are the five. Number one, verse one, the gospel is God's gospel. Uh, It's not a human invention. Nobody emerged from a cave um, having written a magic book and said, well, I now have the gospel. Uh, This message which has come to us in a book written by 40 authors in different languages over different centuries is a miraculous work of God. In, of course, the religion of Islam and the Mormons, you do have one person who claims that their one book is to be taken seriously and they hold the world to ransom. But it's not like this with the New Testament. God initiated the gospel. He is behind the gospel. Just as we face creation and we must deal with creation, just as we face salvation and we must deal with salvation, just as we see Jesus appear in the world, so the gospel has come to us. No human came up with the gospel. It's too unique, it's too supernatural, it's too countercultural, it's God's gospel. Second thing to take in is that the gospel was promised in scripture. Before Jesus arrived, there were 2,000 years of prediction in scripture that somebody would come, someone who would come and deal with sin. They would be the savior, the king, the prophet, and the priest. And the scriptures that go right back to um, Genesis predict from Genesis to Malachi the coming of a savior king. So Paul says the gospel was written about in the scriptures. Now, one man called Stan Telchin, who is a Jewish man, was horrified when his daughter became a Christian. And Stan Telchin has written a book called Betrayed. But it's actually a book about Jesus because he decided that he must comb the scriptures to find out whether Christianity was true. And in the combing of the scriptures, he became a Christian. The last six pages of the book are references from the Old Testament pointing to the person of Jesus. So the gospel of Jesus was promised in the scriptures. Third thing to take in regarding the gospel, it is about Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 3, the gospel regarding God's Son. This message of the church that we are meant to be telling the world is not a message of rules. Uh, You can imagine people wandering past All Saints Wallah and looking up at the building on the hill and saying to themselves, well, I'm so glad I don't go to that place because I don't want to sit there and be told by some hypocrite how I'm to live my life and keep the rules when I'm already a pretty good person. But that's not what we do. We don't major on rules. We don't major on feelings. We don't major on buildings or clergy or offertories or, or even robes or music. We speak of Christ. Everything in Scripture points to Christ. The law points to Christ. The sacrifices of the Old Testament point to Christ. The promises point to him. The miracles point to him. And Jesus does what no other religious leader does. He points to himself as well. Other religious leaders point to their rituals or their practices. 
but Jesus points to himself. He says, I'm the bread of life and I'm the light of the world and I'm the resurrection and I'm the way, the truth and the life and you need me. Notice what Paul says about Jesus in verses three and four. He says just two things. One, he was descended from David. That's his humanity. And the second is he's the son of God. That's his deity. Now, how do we know that he was human? Well, the answer is, of course, his birth and his life. Look at those and you'll see that he was 100% human. How do we know that he is divine? And the answer is, of course, Paul says, to look at the resurrection. The resurrection has announced the deity, the son of God, 100% divine. This was a very public occasion when Jesus was announced to be the Son of God. The fourth thing to take in of the gospel, verse 5, is that it's global. Uh, Literally, Paul says he is to call the nations to faith. He's to call the nations to faith. Christianity is a global faith. And I don't know if you've ever noticed that Christianity actually fits like a hand in a glove in any culture of the world. You can uh, go to visit uh, believers in India or Africa or Russia or Argentina or Australia and they will worship Christ without having a culture straight-jacketed on top of them. The wonderful thing about the gospel is that it is for the whole world and it fits the culture and is... Um, worshipped in the form of the culture uniquely and wonderfully. The whole world needs the gospel because the whole world needs Christ and mercy. Fifthly, the gospel is received by faith. You don't get the gospel rescue by being a nice person, by being a clever person, by being a religious person or a good person. It comes by faith. It's the empty hand that says to Christ, I need you. So there are five things to take in about the gospel. It's God's gospel. It's promised in the scriptures. It's about Jesus. It's for the world. And it's received by faith. No wonder the Apostle Paul is enthusiastic. Second point this morning, the very best news, secondly, to to give out. Chapter 1, verses 14 to 17. These verses in chapter 1, 14 to 17, move from the facts which we've just been considering to the urgency. Paul has said things about the gospel. Now he describes his zeal for the gospel. Uh, Just before we turn to these verses, I want you to know that uh, in one of Lloyd-Jones' sermons on these verses, he asks a very important question in sermon number 19. He says, what do you do when somebody contacts you They are not a Christian, but they are dying. They know that you're a Christian, and this person has begun to fear for their soul and for their eternity. They know nothing about Christianity. They contact you because they think that you may be able to help them. Now, Lloyd-Jones says, what will you do when you go to the bedside of your friend? It's no point you telling them to be good. It's too late for that. It's no point you telling them that you just feel very sorry for them. There's no point in telling them that you'll pray, although that may be useful, it doesn't help them. And then it would be a dreadful thing to give to that person some false assurance 
and say, well, never mind, you'll soon be in heaven and everything will be wonderful when they're not actually ready to meet Christ at all. This person needs very simply to know that Christ has died, has died to pay for sin, to make it possible for a believer to safely travel from this world to the next. They need to know that Christ has died and they need, in the words of Acts 16, verse 31, to believe on the Lord Jesus, to throw themselves on Christ in order to be saved. You don't need to be an expert to go and visit a person in hospital. You just simply know, need to know the gospel, the powerful, wonderful, sufficient gospel. And in the giving out of the gospel, which Paul is so enthusiastic about, he says a number of things. First, verse 14, he says he's a debtor. Literally, I'm obligated. This doesn't mean that he owes money to people or something like that kind of debt. It means he's been given something to distribute. If you're at a dinner and the hostess gives you a plate of cakes to distribute, you're obligated to distribute. And Paul is obligated You'll notice, of course, that he is an apostle, and so he has a very distinct and unique obligation. Every believer has some obligation, but the Apostle Paul's was a primary and a great obligation. Second, he's obligated to everyone or anyone. Every creature, every condition described in verse 14, the Jew, the Gentile, the wise, the foolish, in fact, he says, I'm keen to get to Rome, not because there are no believers in Rome, but because he wants to keep preaching the gospel to the believers for their joy and to the unbelievers for their salvation. So there isn't a single person in the world, there isn't a single person in your suburb, your street, your block of units who hasn't been made by God. And if they've been made by God, you know that they are in revolt against God and they are soon going to meet God and they need the mercy of God today. One of my favorite church signs, which is borrowing actually a sentence of C.S. Lewis, says, imagine this as a big sign on the highway as you drive past. It says, you are traveling at exactly 60 minutes per hour to the presence of God. And that's what people need to know. They're traveling at exactly 60 minutes per hour into the presence of God. So thirdly, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. He's a debtor. He's a, he wants the gospel to go to everyone. And thirdly, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 16, he might have said, I'm proud of the gospel, or I'm excited about the gospel, or I'm thankful for the gospel, or enthusiastic, but he says he's not ashamed. And he's not ashamed because, verse 16, it's powerful. The word in the Greek is dunamos, it's the word that Alexander Noble chose to describe his new explosive, which he called dynamite. Now, why is the gospel powerful? Well, because it comes as God's word to you. God does his work by speaking. He caused the creation by speaking. He brings salvation by speaking. And God's power comes to you in words about Jesus, and the words change you. The words of Jesus' death, the words of Jesus' resurrection, when you believe and trust, your sins are carried away, carried away forever, and there is a new life that is put into your soul. 
If you go down to the mortuary and you see two bodies lying on slabs in the mortuary, they both look pretty much the same. But if one of them has received the gospel of Jesus, that person is heading for the resurrection. If the other person has not received the gospel of Jesus, they are not heading for the resurrection. It is a very powerful, eternity-changing message that comes to us in words about Jesus. And it brings salvation, verse 16. Salvation is, is a very wonderful word in the scriptures, and it's a very three-dimensional or multi-dimensional word. Salvation means for the believer that the penalty has been removed. The penalty for sin has been removed. It means that the power of sin is being removed steadily and surely. And it means that one day the very presence of sin will be removed completely. So everybody needs salvation. Some people, of course, feel it very deeply. Some people don't feel it at all. And they're often the people in the most danger because they need it, but they don't feel it. Of course, it's very wonderful to live in the present, to know your sins are forgiven and to have fellowship with God and with his people. But the real wonder and joy of the gospel will come home to us when we stand in God's courtroom and suddenly we hear these incredible words, this person is completely acquitted. They have put their trust in Christ and there is nothing against them. And they are inheritors of the kingdom of glory. That, my friends, will be a day where the gospel really comes home to us. And the gospel not only brings salvation, it brings righteousness, verse 17. Uh, this little phrase, righteousness of God, was a phrase that you may know terrified Martin Luther. Uh, it sounded as though it was just a terrible standard to Luther. Uh, he would say something like this, God is righteous. Well, I'm not. God expects righteousness. I can't deliver. And then in verse 17, Luther saw the gospel he saw that God gives this righteousness, not to the person who deserves it, that person doesn't exist, but to the person who receives it by faith with an empty hand. Luther says in his diary, I hated the expression, the righteousness of God, but he had mercy on me and I was able to note righteousness and faith and to understand the gift of God. And I felt that I'd been completely reborn. Instantly, all scripture looked different. And as intensely, he says, as I had hated the words righteousness of God, I now love them. Righteousness, of course, is like the father of the prodigal son running down the road, embracing his son who has returned and throwing over him the robe, the special robe which we might call the robe of righteousness. Again, verse 17, this comes by faith. From first, says Paul, to last. We begin by looking to Jesus, we'll keep looking to Jesus, and one day we'll find ourselves forever looking at Jesus. We'll lean on him at the beginning of our faith, and we'll never move away from him. Now, friends, I mentioned a few minutes ago what you'd say if you went to the bedside of somebody who was dying. And interestingly, John Newton describes in one of his letters that very experience. He went to the bedside of a young woman who was dying and he shared the gospel. And he says this in his letters. I visited a young woman in her last illness. 
And having told her the news of Christ, I prayed, thanking God that she had not now trusted in fables, but the sure word of God. When I finished praying, she said, oh, no, sir, not fables. And you are highly favored, sir, to tell this news. It's not until you're in my position, she said, that you'll conceive the vast weight and importance of the truths you declare. My hope is now fixed on the rock of ages. I know in whom I have believed, and death presents a glory which cannot be described. That's the power of the gospel. Now, friends, you know that much of the West has turned its back on the true and living God. It's a very sad and tragic situation. Other countries who simply have idols and temples that provide no real hope at all cling tightly to their temples and the idols. But in the West, we are in a strange culture that has abandoned the true hope of Christ. And therefore, my dear friends, we are in a mission field. And we do need to pray that God would have mercy on us. And we do need to remember that we have very great truths to take in and very great truths to give out. Let's bow our heads and pray. Thank you, our gracious God, for bringing to us your gospel, the gospel of Christ, for all to bring salvation and to be received by faith. We pray that you would not only help us to be good receivers, but also to be those who, in some way, pass on this good news and see others live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.